All right, so I'm going to just open up in prayer, and then I'm going to go ahead and share the disciplines today. It's been such a fun thing to have others sharing and hear from the hearts of um, the discussion group leaders. So lots, and thank you, everyone, for filling in on that. And um, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll start. Dear Lord God, we love you. We thank you for how faithful you are, Lord, and how you... Um, have been faithful to show us yourself and your word and to show us our own hearts. Thank you for revealing those things to us throughout this year of Wellspring. Thank you for the chance to just meet together under your word and to encourage one another. What a gift that has been, Lord. We pray that we will treasure these things and that you will use them in our hearts to bear fruit for your glory and for the building up of our church. In your name, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, um, the, hopefully the disciplines are becoming really familiar with you. And I'm going to go ahead and, and just walk through them one last time. Um, I'll start with the, if you guys want to turn your notebooks over. Start with our verse, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Proverbs 4.23. Um, as I've been going through Proverbs lately in my reading, a few stood out to me in regards to this verse. So first, I wanted to think about Proverbs 15:20. It says, Whoever gives thought to the word will discover good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. So we've learned this year that guarding our hearts requires that we give careful thought to God and his word. And when we make a plan to be with God and his word, daily and regularly, we will discover good and we'll begin to trust him more and more. And we gain his wisdom and understanding through Christ Jesus. And then in contrast to that, later in 1525, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. So we've also learned that if we neglect to be in God's word, Remembering gospel truth regularly, it's sure to lead to hardness of heart towards God's wisdom and to compromise here and compromise there. And soon we're leaning on our own understanding and surely to lead to spiritual death. So kind of a sobering side to the coin. Then in Proverbs 22.5, it said, Thorns and snares are the way of the crooked. Whoever guards his soul will keep far from them. God gave me a first-hand picture of what this neglected heart might look like, this unguarded heart. Um, I had a chance to serve my neighbor um, in recent weeks, and I was tending to her backyard that had been neglected for like several, many months. And um, can you imagine weeds like up to your waist? <laughs> And they were like sticky and prickly and some of them were even so tough that the weed whacker like they would wrap around the weed whacker and stop it from spinning <laughs> it was pretty incredible and it took me a long time to whack those weeds down many hours and get that yard to like a manageable place where you could actually get a lawnmower in there um, but that was a good picture of what can happen spiritually to our hearts if we neglect time in God's word. Um, 
But God is kind to warn us and to encourage us by his word, that by walking in his ways and according to his will, we can avoid that kind of weed-infested, overgrown, unrun, overrun heart. We can guard our hearts. So my goal in walking through these disciplines today is, for the last time this year, is to remind us of what we've learned, only some of what we've learned, because we've learned a lot. If you guys had a chance to review, there's so much. So um, I'm only going to mention a few things to encourage us to continue on in what we've learned. So let's look at the purpose. Um, the purpose is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. So what a year we've had. We've been together under such sound teaching of God's word, and we've had learned about how to approach God in his word, how to handle his word well, how to re realign our thinking to God's thinking, all so that our lives are transformed by the gospel. We will strengthen the church with those same truths as we live them out in the church. And as we encourage others in our church to do the same, we have rubbed up against one another as we have shared in our discipline discussion groups and help each other flesh out what we have been hearing and seeing and how seeking how to live out. We have learned that we need discipline to do this since we are in a mixed condition before God. We are saved, not and but not yet completely. We still have to battle with sin and evil. So we have to learn to approach, we've learned to approach this battleground in three areas, our hearts, our home, and our ministry. So let's look at D1, the heart. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. So we have learned that what it means to shepherd our hearts. It is an essential part of our Christian walk. I want to think about this by looking at Paul's encouragement in Philippians in chapter 3. So if you want to turn to chapter 3, um, I'll just quickly point out some things that Paul reminds the Philippians of. Sometime you should go back and look at this on your own because I'm just going to really quickly point out some things, some phrases that are helpful. And it's kind of nice that we looked at chapter 4 in our homework, so you get this, this is already familiar to you guys. Um, but in chapter 3, in verse 1, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord. And then in verse 2, he warns them to look out for evildoers, those opposed to the truth, who want to learn to lead them astray, reminding them of who they are in verse 3. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And then skip down to verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through 
faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. How does he do this? In verse 12, he says, I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. And verse 13, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Trust God to, trust God to help you think about your word rightly, like he reminded them in verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything that you think in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Um, and also, he reminded them to surround themselves with godly examples. In verse 17, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Then we come to verse two, D2, the home. The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with their heart fixed on God in his word. So we've learned the importance of our home and how it, it is our place for sanctification of our own hearts as well as a place where we learn to live out our new lives and our, new, our re transformed life. Um, as we train up children or as we um, encourage spouses or roommates with the gospel. We must not skip over our homes. We've learned that very clearly. And we've learned that um, that we, as we step out and we can't skip over our homes and think that we can step out into ministry and have the right heart. Let's go on to D3, ministry. With a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. So let's look at how Paul ended his letter to the Philippians in chapter 4. He starts out by reminding them um, to stand firm in the Lord in verse 1 and in verse 2 and 3 he encourages them to help each other to get along. In this case, the two ladies in the disagreement are believers, and in our homes, we often spend time helping others who are not believers, but we can still gain um, the same insight and courage from what Paul is talking to the Philippians and how they should walk. He starts by telling them again, rejoice in the Lord in verse four. In verse five, let your reasonableness be made known to everyone, meaning that you are seeking the best for all, not just for yourself. And because the Lord is at hand, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. From verse 6. The result of that disciplined prayer in verse 7 is the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 8 through 20, Paul reminds them to be disciplined in their thinking and in their serving. This guarding and discipline 
that we have been called to do is dependent on something outside of ourselves. Trusting in the Lord who has at work in us. That was from Philippians 2, verse 13. And then here in verse 19, um, he reminds the Philippians that it is God who supplies every need of ours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. We need to depend on him, not on our own strength, right? Um, the final reminder in verse 23 is that all progress in life is a gift from God through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't grow weary of neglect or, or neglectful of your heart as we come to the end of Wellspring. Over the summer when you're on your own, keep practicing these disciplines and keep shepherding your hearts with God's word to know God and the gospel. Don't allow thorns and snares of this world to keep you from godliness. The consequences of not doing this are astronomical and devastating, though they're not irreversible. God is full of mercy and loving kindness. If you realize that you have gone astray, confess it to God and others. Pick up your Bible again and begin reading. Ask a sister to walk with you. By God's grace, you are not alone. Um, in your stack of handouts that you got today, there's a handout called Feeding and Fencing, continuing on after Wellspring. It just has a list of things that can you can, you know, if you feel like you, you need some more help, you can, it just points you to some ideas of things to go to, um, to keep, keep your heart engaged and loving one another. It even talks about being involved in small groups and other things. So hopefully that's helpful to you. And thank you for all of you who have already filled out the evaluation form online. Um, if you haven't, take some time to do that. That'd be, it's really helpful for us in planning. All right, good morning, ladies. It is good to be with you. Um, what time do I need to be done? Is it 10? 10.30? I can do that. I can. I'll try. <laughs> Not a chance. <laughs> All right. Well, today we are discussing peacemaking and uh, conflict resolution. I don't have the, the Wellspring outline, but I think mine matches up pretty close. Sure. Open up to James 4. It's a great place to start in thinking about conflict. Thank you. James is going to give us a helpful starting point for uh, conflict and just thinking about this common category of life. Uh, before we jump in, let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word and these, uh, these ladies who have come and are eager to hear from your word even at an early hour. Uh, 
you are so good to have spoken so clearly and thoroughly, sufficiently to us uh, in a way that is uh, superior to any anywhere else we could look for counsel and instruction. And as we think about being peacemakers, as we think about how you've given us opportunities in the various situations of life that we find ourselves in, uh, some students, uh, wives, moms, friends, co-workers. God, I pray that you would help us to really embody these principles that your word puts in front of us, that we would truly humble ourselves uh, under your word, certainly, before you who have all authority, and also before others, uh, before one another, that you would be glorified in us uh, through, through peacemaking. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> James 4. James gives us a succinct description of the source of quarrels in verse 1 of James 4. He asks this question, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. And then he diagnoses this and says, verse 4, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The source of quarrels and conflicts, as we think about this uh, realm of life where peacemaking inevitably takes place uh, during conflicts, conflicts are revealing, aren't they? They're going to reveal what we desire most, uh, things that we crave, things that we lust after. And so in that sense, conflict reveals worship. Whenever the inner life is revealed, the things that are happening at the heart level are being made known. Desires, thoughts, emotions, beliefs, convictions, those kinds of things, those are always revealing what we treasure, what we worship, the things to which we ascribe the most worth. And conflict is, is no different. Conflict, just as James is communicating here, is what happens when there's a difference of opinion or a difference of purpose, difference of desires uh, that clash, right? So uh, the a definition of conflict, this is Alfred Poirier, who wrote the Peacemaking Pastor, really helpful uh, peacemaking book for shepherds. He says that conflict, he defines conflict as a difference of opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires. Conflict is when my desires, expectations, fears, or wants collide with your desires, expectations, fears, or wants. 
So a difference of opinion or purpose that frustrates someone else's goals or desires. And so the thing to which we ascribe worth, what we treasure most in a given moment or generally in life, is going to be disclosed in our conflicts. If you step into a conflict and you have a desire for something that someone else also has a desire for, uh, in that moment, if you choose to be humble and relinquish your preferences, then that reveals worship. That what you value most is not clinging to your preference, but what you value most is uh, love for God by loving this person, uh, love for God by choosing their preferences and holding their interests more important than your own. Um, of course, you could make the same decision externally uh, because you have an ungodly fear of conflict, right? There's the last piece of cake. I'm just going to give it to you because I don't want to, you know, I fear conflict more than anything else, and I just want to keep the peace. Uh, you could make it the, the decision that way. But if the heart is right, and you say, you know what, I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to take this opportunity to value your desires more than me. For the glory of God, then that's also revealing of, of what you worship. You're taking that opportunity to display uh, perhaps the generosity of God in giving your husband or your child or whomever the, uh, the last piece of cake in avoiding conflict. Uh, on that note, in terms of just preparing for conflict, that next section, uh, that first section on your, on your worksheets, this, because conflict reveals worship, then worship of God, even the God who ordains conflict, is always the primary, first, most important way to prepare for conflicts before they come. To have your, in your, have your heart rightly oriented toward God. To be practicing, esteeming God, valuing his opinion, uh, bringing yourself into submission to his word, most of all, making that your chief aim in life, in all things, is a great way to be prepared when you find yourself in the midst of a conflict that you didn't expect. James even includes this idea in the passage that we read, because verse 2, he talks about their lusts and their cravings. They desire things. They crave things that they don't have. So instead of trusting God with not having that thing, they commit murder. They're envious and can't obtain. Right? Envy is always a failure to worship God. Um, good plug for the, the book Envy of Eve. It's a, a really helpful book. I think that's... Uh, of that book, the most helpful chapter is where she actually gets down to uh, when someone is envious, here's what they're believing. Here's what they're believing about God, about his provision. If someone's envious, just to think about what James is capturing for us here, <clears throat> someone is 
believing in that moment that they crave something that they cannot have, that they insist at the heart level, at least on obtaining something that God has withheld from them. Just think for a moment what they're believing about God, what you must be believing about God if you're going to envy. God is not wise. Because if he was wise, he would have wisely given me that thing that he didn't give me. In your heart, you're saying God is not wise. God is uh, sovereign in a bad way, perhaps. Yeah, he does control the universe, and what he should be doing with all of his authority is giving me this thing that I crave. In your heart, to be envious, you must say, God is not wise, God is not sovereign in the right ways. In fact, what you're actually believing in that moment is not only something about God, but you're stating something about yourself. I could run the universe better than God could. If I had all authority and power at my disposal, which God does, that thing that I don't have, I would take it. I would, I would give it to myself. Because God's not good. I am good. And I would be good to myself in these ways. Now, if someone handed you a sheet of paper and said, tell me who you think God is, no one's going to write that. No Christian, at least. Right? Uh, but the, the actions certainly do speak louder than, than words. You know, What you actually believe is not what you can put down in a doctrinal statement, not what you can articulate in a carefully guarded moment. But what we believe most spills out of us uh, in those, those uh, unexpected moments, right? And so the, the cravings, the envy that James is describing here are revealing worship in his audience. And the fights and the quarrels are merely the fruit of what's been happening within them. Right? When conflict happens in your home, the conf conflict isn't the root of anything. It is the tip of the iceberg. It's the fruit that have grown out of whatever's in the soil of the hearts involved. There's a problem that he diagnoses in his audience in verse 3. He says, first off, you ask and don't receive for this reason. You ask with wrong motives. That's a worship issue. Your motives are wrong to begin with. And so what you crave, what you desire, and what you're pursuing are actually uh, withheld from you by God, which is a kindness from God. If you think, you know, the person who wants uh, to make more money, to have more resources, who's asking from the wrong motives, uh, God, in his kindness to them, is withholding that. You would destroy yourself with more money. You would depend on me less. You would think that you've arrived and you're the source of uh, whatever financial uh, upward mobility you've attained. right? And that would turn you prideful. And so I'm withholding that from you. That's actually a kindness from God that the person who's has um, unrestrained cravings, lusts, that has envy in their heart, 
he's being kind to them in that way by withholding what they desire. So they ask with wrong motives. It's not for the glory of God, but he says to spend on their own pleasures. It's not for what God desires, but it's for their own pleasures and comfort. And so to just begin with right worship is a great starting point for for thinking about conflict. Uh, And to not forget that God actually ordains conflict. Um, If we have a low view of God's sovereignty, that when my friends are not treating me the way I want to be treated, when my husband is not loving me the ways that he should, when my children are not showing me the honor and obedience that God requires of them, in those moments, if you think God's sovereignty, his plans are being thwarted. The universe is out of control. And I need to do my very best to bring it back under control. You're going to you're going to sin quite a bit if you're not assuming, if you don't already have it set in your mind, things are going according to plan. Not my plans. But things are going exactly as God, before the foundations of the world, planned them to go. Because God is sovereign. And so if, if something, if the person, the woman who has that in her mind, that God is sovereign, I wake up in the morning, and this day is going to go exactly how God planned it. Uh, he planned my day wiser than I possibly could. Psalm 139.16 says, he wrote all of my days in a book, every event that happens to you, every sin committed against you, every opportunity for you to practice self-control, patience, long-suffering has been perfectly planned by an all-wise God. You roll out of bed and you think that, and whatever happens, if if you can hang on to that thought all day, meditate on that, all day, then you will step into a conflict more prepared. Also, uh, secondly, if you expect, just expect conflict, that's a great way to prepare for conflict. If you don't uh, foolishly convince yourself, my day has to be conflict-free in order to be a good day, (laughs) but you think this is the day the Lord has made, It'll be good. I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to be glad in it. And conflict's going to be a part of the equation. Uh, That Job 5 passage, man is born for adversity like sparks fly upward. That's right. In a Genesis 3 world, this side of the garden, conflict is unavoidable eventually. You could despise participation in conflict. That's another good way to prepare for conflict. Before they come, just have a healthy distaste for them. Not an ungodly fear of them, where you're willing to sin against God to avoid them. But a healthy distaste of conflict uh, is is good and right for the Christian. Uh, Proverbs 6 says that among the things that God hates... One who sows discord among brothers. This unhealthy craving for conflict is not right. It's something that the Lord hates. 
2 Timothy 2, saying, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all. It is right to have a, a healthy distaste for conflict. I was thumbing through uh, Proverbs in the back, uh, and now I can't remember where I saw it, but it said... Uh, it compared a quarrel, living with a quarrelsome wife to li like living in a, a desert land. I don't know what that means if you live in Arizona with a quarrelsome <laughs> woman. It's like you got the worst of both worlds. You know? <laughs> um, be a woman who despises quarrelsomeness right, in her home. Doesn't make, make it painful for, for uh, her husband and children to, to live with her her roommates to live with her. Number four, you could resolve to resolve conflict. It's a good way to prepare. Resolve to resolve conflict. Just set it in your heart that conflict will come. I'm going to worship God who ordains them. I'm going to expect to encounter them. And when this happens, even though I have already developed in myself an unhealthy craving or excuse me um, a, a healthy distaste for conflict when they do come I am going to resolve them biblically and we'll talk about how to do that practicing beforehand for conflict you've got a couple passages there second Timothy 2 that we mentioned uh, Galatians 5 records the fruit of the spirit and then right on the heels of the fruit of the Spirit and this charge by Paul to walk by the Spirit and not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Then comes chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, meaning you find your friend, your poor friend who's ensnared by a sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. So... The fruit of the Spirit, front end, back end of this verse that says how to resolve conflict, that we should resolve conflict. Um, which in, or involves uh, rescuing others in sin, which often make for, for conflict. Um, the person, the point there is the person who is walking in the Spirit practicing living out the this fruit of the spirit multifaceted fruit of the spirit is the right kind of person you who are spiritual you're walking by the spirit in that context that's what it means to be spiritual is one who is controlled by the spirit lives out these fruit in an evident way that's the kind of person who is prepared to restore such a one. And if you have ever participated in restoring such a one, I hope that you have, then you know conflict is usually how that goes, to some degree. And then capitalize on, on the opportunities in conflict. Uh, Paul communicates in 1 Corinthians 11, that the factions in Corinth had to be the case in order to prove who was genuine, to prove the genuine brethren. 
that that is happening in church discipline oftentimes is that the genuineness or lack thereof is being proven is being made known what heaven already knows Matthew 18 says is merely being revealed what is either bound or loosed uh, by heaven is being made known through the discipline of the church and so opportunities in that sense or conflicts are opportunities in that sense and think of them that way you get to participate with God in proving who his true children are and when someone has stepped into your life and confronted you uh, about sin and you've realized that person was right haven't you been thankful for the opportunity that they took to speak into your life to sanctify you by God's grace and in that case it's proven the genuineness of your faith praise God uh, Hebrews 12 it's proven your authentic sonship discipline according to Hebrews 12 is a privilege uh, that comes with sonship that was such a sweet principle to uh, live out in our home when we adopted our son Jonah discipline was off the table for him and then when he became a true son a legitimate son then he got the privilege of discipline to his dismay at first <laughs> he had never seen a rod before the day we adopted him he's the only the only child that we remember the date of the first discipline <laughs> it was easy because uh, his adoption trial and then you know when we got home and the same discipline uh, disobediences were happening we actually had recourse now uh, and he thought that was a toy how sweet <laughs> and about the third time that we took him into the room that day he realized this isn't a toy and he just cried <laughs> when he saw it uh, doesn't take long to uh, to realize what's going on discipline's a grace from God in the home it's a grace from God in the church in considering peace, just pondering peace for a moment, God is always the right starting point. When you think about any category of theology, you, know, you want to uh, get your arms around all the Bible says about any area of theology, God is the right starting point. Who is God as it relates to this? And when it comes to peace, the Bible calls God in multiple places the God of peace. He's the God of peace. He's the God of peace in the sense that he's the source. He's the God of peace in the sense that he is the one who brings it about ultimately. He is the God who facilitates peace. He's the God who is the source of all true peace. And so in just considering uh, this God of peace, the Trinity is all involved, each member of the Trinity. One God, three distinct persons who are not the other persons, but they all are one God. All are incredibly interested, invested in peace, in the peace of, of his people. Um, think about just the way the gospel demonstrates that the trinity is eager for peace go to romans 5 
Romans 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore, having been justified, that is, having been perfect, grammatically speaking, perfect tense, something has happened in the past with enduring or ongoing effects extending up to the present moment, like saying he has arrived, and he's clearly still here, but he came in the past, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, that is the Father. We have peace with God. He is the one with whom we must have peace. And then that happened through the means is our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith, again, by faith, by faith, into this grace in which we stand. That's currently. So the peace was obtained in the past, by Jesus, he was the means, and the end of, of that peace was with God the Father. So God is, uh, God the Father is the one with whom we have to have peace. Uh, the Son obtained that peace, and then the Spirit, it should say Ephesians 4, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The unity that accompanies peace in the church is by the Spirit. So that should say Ephesians 4, um, not a passage on parenting in Ephesians 6, but Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Spirit of even facilitates peace in the church. If you think avoiding conflict uh, is pleasing to God in the church, the spirit that's not what the Spirit's doing. The Spirit's not leading you to avoid conflict. The Spirit's leading you to resolve conflict in the church so that there's true unity, not just a toleration of one another, but a true unity where we ha we actually are reconciled and agree we're friends, not because we pretend to be and avoid conflict, but because we have gone right through the conflict and addressed it and come out friends on the other side of it. Peace comes in various forms. Uh, you have those listed there for you. Vertical, as we read, between us and God. Horizontal between us and then you have categories of people. So all people be at peace, strive to be at peace with all men. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. And especially believers. That's something that we may not be able to obtain with unbelievers or people outside the church, even believers outside the church. But within the church, it's not optional. There must be peace between between uh, believers, especially those who are of the same church. Uh, there's a, a peace that characterizes the individual person. The, uh, Philippians 4 speaks to that, the uh, peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
That's for the one who is trusting the Lord, bringing his prayers, requests, making them known to God with thankfulness, is guarded by God's peace. And then there's even uh, an often overlooked category of peace, which is future peace. Future peace. Uh, all of those passages having to do with the peace that Jesus himself will establish on earth in part through making war on his enemies. He will make peace be the case by destroying the wicked from the earth when he finally comes in the end. And with him, his kingdom, he will reign from the temple in Jerusalem as priest and king. Those roles will be fulfilled for the first time in one individual, King Jesus, in a, a visible, tangible way on earth. Um, Isaiah says the, in chapter 11 and chapter 65 that the peace will be so thorough that people will still die at this period of time on earth in, in Isaiah 65, but the age will be, you know, young men will die at 100 only because of egregious sin. And animals will cease to, to eat humans and be at enmity with man because a child shall lead wild animals. I plan on owning a Bengal tiger <laughs> in the kingdom. Uh, but they will become docile because the, the peace that Jesus for, forces onto creation will be so thorough that a child will play with cobras. They won't be poisonous. Uh, lead wild bears and lions, animals that are known for killing in our day. That peace is also coming. And how encouraging is that when for some reason or another with, with family members, uh, unbelievers, people outside the church, perhaps wayward children where you insist on peace on God's terms and you just can't have it, that does happen, where the other party refuses to be at peace, uh, maybe because they require you to be at peace on their terms and not God, to sacrifice your Christian convictions if you want a peaceful relationship with me and you just can't can't go there, you can't sacrifice obedience to the Lord because you, you're worshiping him and not them. Uh, how encouraging is it then to look beyond the current conflict to the coming peace? That one day this won't be a problem. I will have perfect peace uh, when, when Jesus makes it be the case in the kingdom. That can be a stabilizing force for your heart. Considering also that, that peacemakers are blessed and promised future sonship, go to Matthew 5. I love the, the Sermon on the Mount. The, the more I come to understand what Jesus is doing, the more impressive the Sermon on the Mount is. Here is the king himself communicating to people not in the kingdom, right? At this, this age when he's, he's teaching He's on earth. King Jesus came to the Jews to tell them about his kingdom. 
And in verse 20 of Matthew 5, he's uh, laying down this, this principal idea to the entire Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 8. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Here is the king telling these sinful people and his disciples what is the true righteousness that characterizes kingdom citizens. This is not about, you know, you read through the Sermon on the Mount, and if you just read it, you, you know this. This isn't about uh, positional righteousness, because he's talking about things like uh, being the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Uh, he addresses various aspects of human relationship, uh, reconciling with others in the, this passage, uh, sexual immorality and divorce, uh, about holding on to, uh, or not retaliating against other people, right? Holding uh, grudges, how to love your neighbor, those kinds of principles. I mean, those are very practical, those are issues of practical righteousness. And what he's demonstrating in the Sermon on the Mount is that those who are destined for the kingdom, those who believe God in such a way that they have been transformed by God and will one day inherit a coming kingdom. This is how they live now. That's what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount. And so a part of what he's preaching is that peacemakers, just a foundational principle, peacemakers are blessed, verse 9 says, for they shall be called sons of God. Being a peacemaker now, a woman who is humble and convinced of what God says is true so that she maintains uh, peaceful relationships with others. She's not known for being a, a brawler, a, one who is quarrelsome with others, itching for a fight, and she's even unafraid to step into hard situations where she must speak into the lives of others to resolve conflict, a woman who does that is blessed. That's proof now of what will be the case, that you will be called a child of God. To be a peacemaker now, to be able to resolve, be willing to resolve conflicts the way God says that you must, is uh, will will convince you will prove in a sense that you are a child of the king and that you you are going to inherit a kingdom to come peacemaking is also a sign of true wisdom uh, according to James 3 let's just read that in case we uh, don't get to it later James 3, just before we the passage that we read in uh, James 4, where he gets very direct about why there are conflicts amongst the audience he's talking to. He says in verse 13 of James 3, Who is wise among you and understanding? 
let him show his good behavior, excuse me, let him show by his good behavior, his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. That's how you can demonstrate true wisdom, not by telling people you're wise, but by demonstrating <laughs> you're wise. Uh, and that's going to be manifested in a conflict and gentleness. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Don't feign to have wisdom that you don't actually possess when what you actually possess is jealousy, selfish ambition, carnal desires, such as that. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but this wisdom is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every vile thing. You think about in our home, if there is disorder, I'm not talking about necessarily a messy house. If you have children, then you have a messy house <laughs> oftentimes. Um, but if there is disorderliness, unruliness, constant conflicts, unresolved and unchecked bitterness, then this passage so helpfully diagnoses that for us. In God's word, isn't it helpful that God tells us, hey, if you can see the fruit, I'll tell you what the root of that is. And then, and then you believe in God. Oh, man, there is jealousy. There is selfish ambition here. Something's wrong in the heart, right? Selfish ambition, according to verse 13, in the heart. Let me go look for that. In, a, in, in my heart first, right? And getting the log out of my own eye. Is that happening in my life? Is that the cause of this disorder in my home, perhaps? In contrast to those things, the jealousy, the selfish ambition that produce disorder in all kinds of our practices, verse 17 says, the wisdom from above, though, is these things. First, pure. First, Pure, that is, uh, with untarnished, uh, without defilement, wisdom from above is. It's so helpful that it's not first peaceable. It's not, the wisdom from above is not first peaceable. It's first pure. It's first pure. It's first holy. And then peaceable. So you may for the sake of maintaining purity of life, holiness of life, uprightness of heart, you may find yourself in a situation that doesn't feel peaceable. Wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Peace, peace, peace. It just characterizes the wisdom from above. And you think about this list. This is a helpful list. In a conflict for your own heart, or when you have to step into the life of, a, of another person and help reconcile two different parties, to just go here and examine for that person, let's, let's just consider if these characteristics are present 
in you. Generally, perhaps, as well as in the midst of this conflict, these are characteristics that are going to be helpful to peacemaking. Purity, peaceableness, gentleness, a willingness to be one, reasonableness, right? Are you being reasonable or are you being unreasonable in, in your demands, in your desires? Maybe the conflict exists because you're just not being reasonable. Your expectations are unwarranted. Full of mercy and good fruits. Unwavering without hypocrisy. All of those are, uh, obviously they extend beyond usefulness in a conflict, but particularly in a conflict, those things are going to be helpful to ensure that you're practicing. Did you say 8.30, Dina? Okay. All right. Usually when I teach this lesson, I have 90 minutes. <laughs> I don't have that now. All right. In the midst of a, a conflict, just a couple, a couple practices or a, a couple elements that are indispensable is going to be forgiveness and con, uh, confession. Forgiveness and confession are going to be essential. So we're going to talk about those in the midst of a conflict. Nobody's ever perfect. You know this? You never perfectly handle a conflict, although you can be faithful and, uh, and upright in the midst of a conflict. Oftentimes, you will need to humble yourself to confess wrongdoing. Now, if I was teaching this to the men, Jesus being the pattern of peacemaking in the gospel, it's always helpful to consider that Jesus, God himself, initiated peace. So if you're going to love uh, your wife like Christ loved the church, then you need to initiate men in establishing peace. Uh, you need to initiate. Don't wait for your wife to confess. And then you go, okay, you know what? I, had, I didn't handle that perfectly either. Let me mention some things that I did wrong. But they're not here. You are. <laughs> and if your husband's not initiating uh, in establishing peace, it's still right and good to be humble and confess first. You can, you can initiate. You can humble yourself first. And wouldn't it be great if in the midst of a conflict you found yourself competing for who's going to confess first? Nope, no, wait, wait, let me, nope, wait, let me go first. I should be initiating. No, wait. That'd be a great conflict to have, decide who's going to confess first. Uh, some helpful principles in confession. Um, you can write down, by the way, Proverbs uh, 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. If, I mean, if you just had it in your heart, and you were just convinced of that every moment of the day. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. How eager would you be to confess? If you just knew, I can conceal this, but it won't go well. It's not going to be helpful in my home. It's not going to be helpful to keeping a clear conscience if I conceal this transgression, if I remain unwilling to admit my fault, 
to confess my sin. This is going to hurt. But it's better than not prospering to just confess. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them, two things, not concealing your transgression requires not only confession, but also forsaking the sin. Whoever confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Uh, the promise of God's mercy, for sure, this is always true on a vertical level, right? Confessing sin to God, actually forsaking it, that's a succinct way to capture repentance is to confess and forsake sin. Um, that person always obtains the mercy of God. Right? God is always merciful to the person who humbles themselves before him to admit to God that they're as bad as he already knows and then is willing to give up and run away from uh, the sin that that would ensnare them. But also, that, that proverb is often true, even if it's not specifically about mercy on a human level. It's often true, is it not, on a, on a human level, on a horizontal level, that when you humble yourself before others, how difficult is it for the other person to stay mad at you? Uh, especially if they already love you and, and they want to be reconciled, and you humbly come and say, I was wrong about this. And, and you confess well, then most often, especially with people who are merciful Christians, then you'll, you'll obtain mercy with them as well. So these seven A's of confession articulated really well by Ken Sandy in The Peacemaker, uh, as well as by Alfred Poirier in The Peacemaking Pastor, which we'll is move through these quickly. Address everyone involved. Uh, confess as publicly as you sinned, in a sense. Now, if you sin in your heart before God, confess that in your heart and before God. Um, and yet, if, if sin was manifested and you sinned against others in a, in a way that was visible, more visible than a heart level, then, then let the confession be, be there as well. Uh, if you sin against one child before the other children, then confess to that child before the other children, or at least acknowledge if that comes at a later time before the other children that what they witnessed was wrong, right? If you dishonor your husband before the children, make sure that they know that that was wrong. That's, that's proper, that's right. Uh, avoid words like if, but, maybe. Um, that makes for a, a good excuse, not a good confession. You know, if I if I sinned against you, I know you felt hurt, but when you did such and such, I know I sinned against you in speaking harshly, but when you said such and such, I just got right. That's not a good confession. Avoid avoid those words. And really that's that's more that's always for us, our comfort. It it's softening the uh the confession. It it holds on to the other person's uh, culpability rather than just not worrying about the part they played in the conflict and just putting all of my sin up front. That's really hard to do in 
the other person's unwilling to be as humble. It's hard, but it's right. Because their sin isn't your responsibility, but your sin is your responsibility. Uh, admit specifically what was wrong, not just generally, hey, I sinned against you. I mean, that's, that's good. It's better than nothing. But to be specific in your confession, uh, husband, I sinned against you specifically uh, by speaking harshly to you is right. Uh, call it what the Bible calls it. It's helpful using biblical language. Um, oftentimes we use these uh, worldly euphemisms for sin. Uh, I was frustrated. Biblically, people are never frustrated. Only plans. <laughs> plans are frustrated, but not people. So you weren't frustrated. You were something else. <laughs> I was furious. <laughs> I was angry. You know, when he felt your wrath in that moment, it didn't feel like mere frustration or whatever. Your cutting words didn't feel just like frustration. Um, it's helpful for your for your kids to hear that from you. Mommy was angry, right? Because when they open their Bibles and they hear God talk about anger, man, mommy has confessed that to me. But they'll open their Bibles and never see that you were frustrated. And mommy was mommy confessed being frustrated, but I don't know what that is. God never talks about that. Um, acknowledging the the specific hurt that you cause the other person can be helpful. Just to say, hey, I know that that must have made you feel this way, right? Sort of communicates that you've considered the damage from their perspective. You've gotten in their shoes a little bit. Uh, except what consequences might come. Uh, you know, in in the in terms of consequences, sometimes consequences extend beyond the particular confession. Uh, there can be a lack of trust, lost. Um, that's a consequence of of sin, perhaps. But to be willing to endure those those uh, consequences. Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 7 that uh, he says, Oh, what punishment this uh, godly sorrow produced in you. That's another way of saying that the Corinthians became willing to endure the consequences of the sin that they had committed as a church. And so their repentance was demonstrated that that true godly sorrow that produced repentance in them was manifested in their willingness to accept the consequences. You think of a child who um, is disciplined and confesses in whatever way they know how to the, the parties involved, and then they say, okay, buddy, um, because of that, you know, you're, we're going to remove this privilege that you're uh, clearly not prepared to handle in this moment in a God-honoring way. Well, if the child's angry because the privilege was removed after discipline, after confession, they're still insisting and won't relinquish the, the, the privilege that's been taken away. Is that child really repentant? 
No, they're not willing to to bear the consequences of of the sin. Uh, altering behavior that we've uh, that we've talked about, actually forsaking the sin. So commit to it and actually change is uh, what's required um, to ask forgiveness in the form of a question. Just so helpful in that moment to say, will you please forgive me after you've said, person whom I've sinned, whom I've sinned against, I sinned against the Lord and I sinned against you by speaking harshly. You know, you're naming the sin by being angry, by seeking to intimidate you, by speaking loudly or whatever it is. You name the sin specifically and then ask, will you please forgive me? That's different than saying, so forgive me for uh, such and such and such. Because right? then that doesn't require any response from them to actually make it a question, will you please forgive me? Uh, you know, you're sort of putting your head on a chopping block and handing them the axe. Can I have mercy? Do what you will. Uh, but it also gives them the opportunity to say, I would love to forgive you. Absolutely. Um, what you're asking for in that moment, and we'll talk about forgiveness, but what you're asking for in that moment when you ask for forgiveness is for them to not hold it against you. Don't hold this against me. Don't treat me in keeping with the sin. But rather, let go of the debt and don't require anything of me uh, for this sin. And then, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Thank you for uh, for that clarification. Uh, the the difference here would be to use your example, remaining angry with the child, or um, bringing it up in a way to get at them, right? To remind them of uh, in an unkind way. Right. Yeah, but it doesn't mean that, again, those consequences that come as a matter of caring for you, not hurting you or or anything, that would be a matter of, of to love you well, we're going to remove privileges or change circumstances so that you don't fall into the same sin. Yeah, but it's not a personal, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? You're not hanging on to a, a personal uh, vendetta, uh, yeah, against them. Um, and then allowing time is can also be helpful to uh, allow time where where it's necessary, uh, and for that person to to come around, um, even being understanding when it's hard for them to relate to you in the future. Not that they haven't chosen to forgive you. But 
just being being okay if it's if it's difficult for them in the in subsequent moments is helpful as well. Uh, turning the page uh, to forgiveness. So we got twelve minutes. Forgiveness and confrontation. Okay. <laughs> uh, as I mentioned, in forgiveness, you're you're literally the the word has to do with relinquishing debts. Right, forgiving debts in Matthew 18, after Jesus talks about reconciling, pursuing reconciliation and church discipline with your brother, he goes into a parable in how to think about forgiveness in Matthew 18. Uh, one of the primary principles there being aware of your own indebtedness to God. Uh, for the sake of of others, of being of dealing mercifully with others, the person who's most aware of their sin, when it comes time for you to forgive others, then you have very little trouble forgiving others because you're already aware of your own debt that you've incurred. William Plummer. In his book on providence, he talks about the long-suffering of God. Really helpful chapter. He says this, No man has ever treated any of us as badly as each of us has treated God. If God spares us, let us spare one another. To be long-suffering with one another, because you're aware of your own sin before God, even that is an act of worship. To take an opportunity as one who has received mercy to then exemplify mercy toward another is, is one way that you can worship God. Um, so in forgiveness, a, a succinct way of thinking about when you tell another, when you ask for forgiveness, but when you extend forgiveness to someone else, what you're essentially committing to do is is this, if you've truly relinquished them from the debt they've incurred by sinning against you, so to speak, um, what you're committing to do is to not dwell on it personally, right? I can't believe they did this, and I'm going to remain angry. I'm going to uh, allow myself to feel the weight of what they did and hold that against them, right? You're, you're committing, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm actually going, not going to dwell on this personally. Uh, you're committing to not bring it up again, uh, to use against that person, right? so that when it's convenient for me, I'm going to use this as a way to protect myself and bring up what you did as a way to hurt you or protect myself. That's not forgiveness. Uh, thirdly, you're not going to talk about it, gossip to others and extend the, you know, the shame or blight that might be brought against someone's reputation by spreading the information. If you're doing that, then you haven't actually forgiven them, forgiven them. And then finally, not letting it stand between you and the, the other person or hinder your personal relationship. Now, again, that, that comes with a caveat, right? Just because 
you don't have a a personal you're not holding on to a, a personal hurt doesn't mean that there won't be consequences that are a natural outflow of specific sins and, and different sins have different consequences so if your child is a perpetual liar and then and he's demonstrated that you can't trust him that you actually shouldn't trust him for his own good then even though you forgive him and you're not letting his deceitfulness stand between your relationship meaning you're going to draw near to him you're going to love that child you're going to seek to do them good even though they lied to you you're going to show them affection and care and concern you're not going to withhold hugs and kisses from that child. Nope, you lied to me. I'm still, I've forgiven you, but, you know, go over there. That's not forgiveness, but you may have, you may need to revoke privileges. You may need to alter their circumstances. You may not, you may need to uh, not put them in the same situations where they're lying. You may need to ask more questions. Uh, you may need to, in a moment where you're suspicious, for good reason, ask them, hey, are, are you lying to me right now? Are you telling mommy the truth, right? That's not, I'm still holding this against you, but no, you've demonstrated to be a perpetual liar, and so I'm gonna, in, in an attempt to lovingly help you, deal with you in, in this helpful way. But as far as it depends on you, the, the one who's forgiven biblically from the heart is not stiff-arming uh, the other person, withholding good from them uh, because of personal hurt. Does that make sense? Any questions on that? Good. You're all experts. <laughs> I hope. <clears throat> um, finally, just confrontation. Some passages and principles from these passages. I have, I have uh, four for you. Practicing confrontation, biblical confrontation, and the, the various forms that this could take include at least four characteristics. Uh, is humility. You can write down Matthew 18, 15, and 20. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. One of the ways humility is described is being put on display in that process that Jesus describes of going to your brother. If he doesn't listen, bringing one or two more. If he still doesn't listen, telling it to the church. And if he still doesn't listen, uh, treating him as a Gentile and a tax collector, having nothing to do with him, in a, essentially. The way humility is, is being put on display in that instance is, first off, a willingness to obey Christ. That's, actu that's actually humble. <clears throat> it may not feel humble to the person being confronted in the moment, but it is always humble to obey God because you are put, bringing yourself willingly under his authority. That is humility. Obeying God is humble always regardless of what the the obedience is 
Did I get an amen? <laughs> um, also, I love in these passages, uh, some that we've already mentioned, all throughout James, where James is instructing them how to, uh, what to do about the conflicts that exist there, uh, from the opening verses, considering trials joy, right? All throughout that letter, James calls them, calls them brethren, brethren, brethren. In Galatians 6 that we've already mentioned, Paul says, brethren, if any of you is caught in any trespass, and then again in Matthew 18, another verse that requires us to confront each other, it is if your brother sins. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.5, or excuse me, 5.1 in verse 2, where Timothy is instructed by the Apostle Paul how to confront various members of the body, older men, older women, Younger men, younger women. He's told uh, to confront older men like fathers. Not a sharp rebuke, but to urge them. Appeal to them as fathers. To younger men as brothers. To older women as mothers. To younger women as sisters in all purity. What's, the, what's similar about all of those passages? It uses family language. When you must confront others to think of yourself not as one in authority over the other person or who now has uh, something I can hold over the other person's head and bringing them, this to them, but humility in all of these passages that talk about confront, confrontation. Use family language. It uses family language to remind us that we are, as the church, the household of God. And so humility is horizontal as well. That I am going to deal with you as a beloved family member. That's so helpful in stepping into a conflict to remember this is family business. And we even call it that uh, when family business gets escalated. Not that that's not always happening at lower levels, but... It is family business. Galatians 6, 1 through 3. How should we address one another, confront one another, seek to rescue each other in sin? Well, it's in a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness should, should characterize your interactions. We've already talked about James 3, 13 through 18. Wisdom. It does take wisdom even in 1 Corinthians 6, that's one of the reasons that Paul chides the Corinthians for suing each other and bringing these uh, in-house family disputes before secular courts. He says, is there no one with enough understanding among you to deal with this in-house? That is a, that's a, a, a blight on, on Christ's authority and character on God's character and on God's truth if the church can't resolve its own conflicts. And we need the expertise of unbelievers to come and fix what's happening in the church. What do you think that communicates to the world about God's wisdom and God's word? 
that does not work. That is not sufficient. They need to look outside of scripture, uh, outside of God's resources to the world for help. So it does take godly wisdom in conflict. And then lastly, Matthew 7, 1 through 5, we didn't look at this passage, but helpful to that passage when Jesus opens by saying, don't judge or you will be judged. That's not a prohibition against any and all judgment. God does not prohibit any and all judgment. He actually expects and encourages it. But the type of judgment Jesus is condemning in that passage is hypocritical judgment. The kind of judgment that would say, I can do the delicate work of taking a speck of dust out of your eye when I have a log in my own. It's hypocritical judgment. And so what he's promoting there is sincerity. As one who confronts others, you must put on sincerity. That is truly walking by the Spirit, living an upright life yourself, in general and in particular in those areas in which you're going to confront others. There needs to be sincerity because Jesus says, remove the log from your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So for your own heart, if you want to see clearly, or to say it a different way, don't assume you see other people sin clearly before you have practiced removing sin from your own life. While you are living in sin, or if there's unchecked, unrepented of sin in your own life, don't think that you can go to your brother because you can't see clearly yet. And so sincerity is, uh, is necessary in conflicts as well. And with those things, you will be well prepared to confront your uh, other people in, in conflict. Any questions uh, before we wrap up? That's a great question. Uh, the give it time is for other people. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's good to, to know your heart in that moment. Um, and if you know what it's right to do, and you're having a hard time doing what's right in the moment, uh, you, can, you can communicate that as well, right? Hey, I know this is what I need to do. I know I need to forgive you. And... I'm going to, I'm, I'm choosing to forgive you. And right now that's, that's really hard for me. Um, that's, that's a confession too. <laughs> uh, in that moment, would I say, hey, don't forgive the person until you're ready? No. Um, if you think Christ is, is, as, is always willing and ready to forgive um, as soon as uh, the forgiveness is sought, and, and we should be as ready. And because God is infinite in his love and mercy, that comes a lot more, that comes a lot harder to us than it does to God. Uh, and so you, you, can, you can say that. You can be candid about that in that moment. Um, 
But for example, if your if your husband sought forgiveness from you and you were having a hard time forgiving him, uh, I think to tell him that would be much appreciated, um, and to say let's let's talk in an hour, <laughs> an hour from now. Let's let's uh, I do forgive you, and I'm having a hard time forgiving you. Right? I believe. Help my unbelief. Yep. If you want to help me in this moment, you can take the kids and the dishes. And I'm gonna I'm gonna take my Bible and uh, <laughs> go outside or <laughs> a coffee, whatever. You know, if you if you want me to forgive you, you should. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. But that's that's a great point because in those moments you have to recognize that this isn't a good place to be, and I can't stay here, uh, and I have to do something. You know, time doesn't just resolve this, but turning to to Christ and God's word in that moment. So. That's, that's helpful clarification. All right, let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Uh, just as I think about your wisdom, the, the wisdom that you've communicated is so wise. It's so perfect and thorough. And where else could we look for better instruction in these things? There is nowhere. And uh, it is so appropriate now just to marvel at your wisdom and to express thankfulness for your help as your spirit works in us to do what is supernatural, what is not normal on a human level and what we would never think to do or even be willing to do in ourselves. Uh, We can just marvel at your kindness to us to work in us in these ways. And so I pray you would do just that. Make us a forgiving people a family uh, of, of Christians who love that when you're pleased, when you watch us together, just dwell in unity. And uh, also, God, the, um, when others come out from outside and see the love that we have for one another, that they would w- admire this family and that they would want to be a part of this family through submission to you in the gospel. We know you only can make these things possible, and we pray you would among us. In Christ's name, amen.